Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the 4 Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek. But this week, I'm not. Hey, everybody deserves a vacation once in a while, and this week, it's my turn. But I've got something I think you're going to enjoy. In this special episode of the 4 Press, Jay Blasi, a golf course architect who works closely with Golf Week's International Raider Program, interviews fellow golf course architect Tom Doak. Doak has built dozens of the best golf courses around the world, but he's also an author, and Blasi talks to Doak about his latest book, Getting to 18, where Doak goes into great detail about his golf course architecture ideas and how he develops routings. Enjoy. Get stronger, hit longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Back Book, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the take-anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body prime for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. All right, here we are. Uh, My name is Jay Blasey. I'm a golf designer, and along with... uh, Tom Dunn and David Normoyle. I serve on the Golf Week uh, Course Raider Advisory Panel. Today, we're uh, lucky enough to be joined by golf designer Tom Doak and talk a little bit about his latest book, Getting to 18. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. It's really nice to be here. Nice to have any social interaction these days. (laughs) It is. Is it safe to assume you're in Traverse City? I'm in Traverse City. I've I came back from Australia the 1st of March, and I've made one two-week road trip by car since then to kind of check in on a few consulting clients and projects, but that is all I have traveled this last five months. It's it's probably a pretty good time to be releasing a book, I would imagine. Yeah, I didn't really plan on that, and I would happily <laughs> go back to traveling and being busier with my day job, but not right now. Uh, well, speaking of that, before we jump into the book, uh, why don't you tell us about what you've been working on lately? Well, we had four projects that were supposed to ramp up this year um, before the pandemic hit. Uh, a place called St. Patrick's in Ireland, which we'd already started and got a lot built last fall. Um, the second course at Sand Valley, or the third course at Sand Valley, rather, in Wisconsin that went on hold. Um, a, pro- a new project in New Zealand down the beach from Terra Iti that also is on hold for now. And a project in Northern California that we've been trying to get permits on for a few years. And they're very close to having permits now. And we just hope the f- whole place doesn't burn up before we get to build a golf course there because the fires are all around there right now. 
Um, but of the four, the only one that we had started was St. Patrick's in Ireland. Uh, luckily, last fall, I stayed extra time and we finished all the green complexes and seeded them. Uh, so this spring, when we went back to finish the last few fairways and everything got shut down, um, I didn't feel like I had to get back there this summer to get the last few fairways finished. Eric Iverson went back over just last month and uh, he and the two European that we've been working with for the last few years are, are working on those last few fairways now. So uh, hopefully it will um, open on schedule in the late spring of next year. And hopefully there will be Irish golf tourism still a thing by then so people can enjoy it. But all of that's up in the air right now, obviously. It'll be, uh, it'll be very interesting to see kind of uh, how the golf public reacts once we knock on wood, hopefully kind of get to the backside of COVID-19 and will there be pent up demand to travel or will there be a kind of multiple year lag of, right. of uh, hesitancy? To, right. to I mean, clearly so. golf in general has benefited. I mean, you know, I, I talked to past clients and the, the public courses, the, the play is up 30%. Common ground told me 50% higher than last year. And it was already a fairly busy place. Um, but a lot of new development is related to tourism and whether tourism is going to be the same thing that it's been for years is really hard to say right now. Yeah, very much so. Well, let, let's dive into the book. And, and if you could just kind of walk us through um, kind of how the book came about and really kind of what it touches upon. It's, it's called Getting to 18 and, and that title has has meaning. Why don't you walk us through that? Sure. And I've got, I've got one handy, so I'll, I get teased for how big the book is, so I can show you here. It's big. Well, I, I've, I've, got, uh, I've, got, I've got my copy yeah. here, too. <laughs> and, uh, it's a very for, fancy for the... book. It weighs eight pounds. And, you know, it, it wasn't written for everybody. You know, if you're, a casual, if you're casually interested in golf course architecture, there's probably other books you want to read first. Uh, but... You know, I've I've got a pretty big library. In fact, it's just over to my left here um, of golf course architecture books and club histories and everything else. And I've always thought, or I've thought for a long time, that there were really two books that haven't been written about golf course architecture. You know, one is just at the single course level, having the architect describe the whole thing and the whole process and why he did it the way he did it, you know. Why does the why is the first hole there? Why is why is the bunker to the right instead of the left? What were you thinking of when you built that hole? Um, and you know nobody's ever really done that. You know, even with all the PR and marketing that we do now for golf courses, nobody gets into it in that depth. And then the other part is just the routing for the golf course, how the holes wind up being where they are. You know. I mean, I, I've always thought of it the same way. Somebody, I can't remember who famously described, you know, he could probably build a bridge if you told him where to start. <laughs> but without, without understanding the basics of it, you can't really follow what people have done and why. And, you know, every golfer will, will freely suggest that there could have been a better hole if you'd put a green over there. 
but they never think it through of how that would have changed the, the whole before it and the whole after it. Um, and, you know, and why lining up the dominoes in a certain way has uh, affects what you're going to do after each one. Um, you know, if you've built two par threes already in the first six holes, then you're not going to build another one, even if there's a great one there. So you'd have to go back and change one of the first two holes. Um, you know, it's, it's putting together a puzzle. And there's not really a book about how people put the puzzle together. And except for very general descriptions in George Thomas's book and a couple of the other architects had maybe a chapter on routing golf courses, but obviously it didn't get into very much depth at all. And it, you know, and unfortunately they speak in generalities about, you know, mixing up the pars and mixing up the yardages and doing everything, which is, you know, simple to say, but you know, great golf courses don't follow those formulas because great golf courses have to hit the real world of a piece of ground where that ideal isn't going to work out so well, or that's that ideal would cause you to skip a really good hole that's laying there because it's not time for a par three yet. Um, so I wanted to go through how it's really done in the world, you know, relating to a piece of ground. And instead of talk about generalities, talk about very specific cases. So like, you know, a textbook would do case studies. So I've used my own first golf courses as case studies, starting with High Point, the very first course I did, running all the way to um, Arnbuckle Dunes as the 18th course, which is kind of the middle of my career now. But, but you know, showing that progression because that's kind of how you learn how to route a golf course, trial and error and you, you take something from everyone and apply it to the next situation, which is going to be a little different. And, you know, to me, that's the fascinating part of it is that um, you get better at it over time. And unfortunately, in today's world, we don't get a lot of practice at doing it. You get better from practice. And, you know, the fact that I've built 35 or 40 courses now means I'm way better at it than I used to be and a little bit faster too. Um, but it also helps that I've, um, you know, worked on a lot of routings for courses that never happened and worked on a lot of consulting jobs where you sort of try to figure out for yourself why they built the course the way they did. And do we really want to keep it that way or change something? Um, and just, walking a lot of golf courses. You know, I, I really think that the more you walk, the, the better you sort of understand the process just by osmosis of, you know, I, I've gone on a lot of courses without really knowing what the routing was and just started walking. And, you know, spending the first 15 or 20 minutes trying to figure out, okay, what is the routing here? You know, is this, is that hole over there the ninth hole or the 18th or some other hole that comes back to the clubhouse? And if, okay, if we turn left at number two, then that, then that hole coming back that way must be number eight and sort of piecing it together in my head. And that really does help when you get a topo map and a piece of paper for the first time and you're trying to figure out wh where to start. Yeah. With that, I, I'd love to just jump in and kind of take the listeners on that 
journey. You do a good job of this in the book. Like you say, you you kind of walk through your first 18 courses and use this, uh, them as a case study. But if we could, let, let's kind of take the listeners with us. They're going to they're gonna be with you through each step of the journey. Um, okay. so, so you get that phone call. Um, I think in the book you mentioned that in, in each instance with, with one exception, the client called you first. Uh, so so, so you you get the phone call, somebody says, Hey, Hey Tom, I've got this piece of land. I'm thinking about building a golf course. Um, what are the things that you're asking of them? Are you asking for a topo map an aerial photo? What, what types of questions are you asking so that you can get a sense? I'll, I'll take probably five minutes to screen a client and try to figure out if it's somebody I want to work for. And it's, it's simple questions. It's, you know, what are your goals? You know, and everybody will say the same things if you give them enough time. But the first couple of things out of their mouth are the most important things to them. And it really helps to hear that right up front. You know, are they a scratch player who wants to build a great course in their local area because there isn't a really hard course now? Are they building a resort and they want people to have fun? Um, you know, what is their bottom line for what success is? Um, and then asking them about the property, soils, vegetation, do they have water? Probably the key question <laughs> that, you know, there's some great sites that don't have access to water and that's a puzzle you can't solve. Um, and one of my great screening questions used to be, do you have a topo map that you could send me? Because, bef- you know, m- with modern technology, it's easier now. But in the old days, to actually get a good topographic map of a site, you had to spend ten or $20,000 to get it flown, surveyed and flown, and somebody print a map for you. And that was a really good sign that, hey, these people are serious about this. And it's not just some wild hair idea. What if we build a golf course over there? But they don't, they're not really in any place to spend the money to do that. So, so that was one of my great screening questions. And it's, you know, now a lot of times you can get that information without paying for it. You know, GIS stuff. A lot of counties and states have good topographic information available now. But it didn't used to be that way at all. I would imagine now uh, in 2020, you're on the phone on an initial phone call. You can jump on Google Earth and actually kind of see their properties. I have done that for remote places. Somebody called me about a site in Tanzania a few years ago, and I was like, "I just want to see what they're talking about." (laughs) Which way from Kilimanjaro? (laughs) And there, there is a golf course there now. Actually, somebody built it. Okay. So, uh, so you, uh, let, let's say they're fortunate enough to have a map, uh, and, and you get your, you, you get your hands on a topo map. Uh, you talk about in the book, uh, you, you, you do a good job of taking the reader through kind of topo map 101 and, and kind of how to read a topo map right. and things to be looking for. And one of the tricks that you talk about is, is color coding just so that you can get a sense for maybe where the highs and the lows are. Yeah, uh, or or ridges and valleys. Um, is that once you get a topo map, is that the first thing that you do, or are you looking for other things uh, when you first get that map? Um, well, I'll be honest, I, I I skip way ahead now in the process because I've been doing it for a long time. I start looking for golf holes right away, <laughs> um, right away, and you know to to be able to look for golf holes right away. 
you know, it's partly experience, but it's also partly getting it to the same scale that you're used to working on. So you can quickly eyeball that and say, that's a par four there, or that's not big enough space to try to jam a hole down in that little valley or that kind of thing. So, so it'd be hard to skip that without having done it for a long time. But, um, you know, did you go to landscape architecture school like I did? I don't remember. I did. Yeah, so I did. They, I went they to Wisconsin. They discussed site analysis and prevailing winds and all these other things. And you do want to think about those at some point. But my first step is to see, are there some really compelling golf holes on this topo that I see? Um, is this interesting enough to me to want to go through this whole process? So, so I'm looking right away for, you know, on hilly ground, where are the spots that are flat enough for fairways and greens? Are you going to be able to connect a sequence together that works or is it just too severe? Uh, for flat ground, is there a place to drain it is, is by far the number one thing. It's like, you know, the second course I worked on was in Myrtle Beach and almost the whole site was just dead flat, two or three foot up and down that you couldn't tell when you were out there. Um, you know, not surface draining anywhere at all, but at the corner of the site where there was a little housing development, they dug a drainage ditch right to our property line in order to drain their development. So there was a place eight or 10 feet lower than the rest of the site where you could outlet the water. And by taking that ditch and bringing it back into our site, we lowered the water table in our site and we're able to contour everything and make it drain to there. Um, you know, without that, you, you have to do what we did at Texas Tech, the other course that I built out of a flat site. And there we're, we were creating, you know, we're, we're just cutting and filling on a, a almost dead flat site to make it work. But what you, what you do in that process is make, you know, everywhere you dig is a bathtub. Now there's nowhere for it to surface drain or leave the site. And you know, what I, what the engineers explained to me in Lubbock was I had to make triply sure, you know, because there was some sheet flow going across that site, I had to make triply sure that it didn't drain into the bathtub because once it did, there was no way to get it out. That there was actually a golf course built in that city, like a public golf course that, that just flooded 10 feet deep after a big storm and the water stayed there for months because they couldn't pump it out. Yeah. So you, you, you've got your map, you're, you're jumping ahead, you're looking for some, some golf holes. Um, now it's time to, to make a site visit, right? That's the other part of the equation is mm -hmm. to, to kind of verify what you might think is a good idea yeah. uh, and to try to assess. You talked a little bit earlier about kind of site inventory and analysis. The other part of the site visit is you, you can learn all the things that you can't learn from a topo map. Where are the good offsite views? Uh, where are the bad offsite views? What's the wind doing? All those kinds of things, right? Right. Uh, and, and, I, and I think probably the two biggest of those are, are the views, like you mentioned, and the vegetation, the trees. You know, are the things here that we really want to save? And that's going to make me steer around a feature on this plan that I didn't know, know was there. Um, you know, it's good to have looked at the topo a little first to think I might want to go this way, you know, 
oh, that there's that tree. Is that worth saving? Is that worth changing the plan around for or not? But um, that is one of the key things, you know, and, and obviously, you know, because I was skipping steps and trying to find golf holes right away, you know, instead of, uh, you know what it's like, if you go out on 200 acres for the for more than that or 5,000 acres without having spent any time at the topo map, you are just overwhelmed by the scale of how big a golf course really is. And it's really hard to focus on where you should be or, or even get a sense of how far is that? You know, am I looking at a 300 yard hole or a 400 yard hole? Whereas if you've played on the topo with it, even a little, you've got a sense of those things and you know, what it takes to fit a golf course on that site. And that's a really big head start in making a site visit. Cause otherwise, you know, if I, if honestly, if I haven't had a topo map yet, my first visit to a site will be like two hours. Cause I don't think I'm going to figure out a lot more until I've got a map and get a sense of what'll fit. Um, you know, I could just wander around for days, but, but I'll be much faster on a map. The Sneak is a true crime podcast from For the Win in USA Today, and this season is on a surfing champion whose life took a violent, tragic turn. Within 30 seconds, they're both dead. The Sneak Murders at Whiskey Creek is out July 29th, wherever you get podcasts. When, when you do make a visit, assuming you've had a chance to look at the map first, do you have, do you try to go about it the same way each time? Do you start at the perimeter and work your way to the middle? Do you try to go to some of these holes that you've maybe found on a topo map and you want to investigate, kind of walk those holes to see if they work? Yeah. And do you, do you, do you like to do that alone, uh, particularly on a first visit, or do you really like to have, a client or somebody else there with you to be talking about these different things as you go? Um, well, I do, you know, anything that I've looked at on the map and it sort of attracted my eye, I'm going to try to see those places and see, is that really as good as I think it is? Is that too severe? Um, you know, cause that will help start, you know, if you find a few pieces you like in the puzzle that, has a sometimes an outsized effect on what you do. Sometimes it has too much effect. You find one thing and you're like, oh, I got to use that. And it really, you know, the, the, the whole thing might be better backwards except for that one hole. But if you're locked into that, you're going to keep going that way. Um, you know, for how many people I want to be involved, it's kind of interesting. It depends on, you know, how fast we're trying to get Certainly by the second visit, I want to bring one or two associates with me, first of all, for somebody to you know walk 300 yards ahead so I can bounce a laser <laughs> off them and find out how far they are. But just you know, walking and talking about what we're seeing, we're going to see a lot more if there's two or three of us than just one, especially through woods where you're having trouble just keeping your sense of direction and you're not going to see the big tree 30, 20, 30 yards over to the right at all. Um, you know, with certainly the first time I'd like for the client to be there so I can feel them out more about what they're looking for and everything else. And also, you know, not always, but a lot of times 
you know, the client has a connection to the land that goes back years. So you can ask them all kinds of questions about soils, wind, drainage, that you're not necessarily going to see right the first day you're on the property. But if you've got somebody who really knows it well, that's that's a great thing to have. You know, I've heard other architects talk about how the client always has one place they visualize for a great par three or something like that. I've not had that experience so much. I don't know if they're exaggerating or not, or whether that's whether that is fairly common in the business. But for my clients, it really hasn't been that much. At, at I, some point, I, that would hurt if you know if you got somebody suggesting too many things to you. It's hard to it's hard to focus on what you're trying to do. And uh, you know, a lot of times when we're building a golf course, I'll spend half my time working with a guy on the dozer building the green over here. But the other half, I'm trying to get away from where everybody else is and go think about the next one. And I, you know, then I don't want people around because I really need to think through it myself. Uh, yeah, further down my list was uh, was the question about you know client suggestions and um, how do you um, you know oftentimes a client can make a great suggestion that could be that could unlock the puzzle so to speak right and a great great idea can kind of come from anywhere on site but and you see but, you, you know you see things done just accidentally that really influence what you do you know Bill Core talks about following animal trails through. And they're not really, you know, maybe in some cases they are finding kind of the path of least resistance, which means it's a pretty good place for a golf hole. But, you know, a lot of times those are just random and they, they're they what lead you in a certain direction. And it turns out to be a good direction. Like, you know, the, the first hole at Pacific Dunes was like that. That was just the place when we come on site and park, there was this little trail that kind of went up through. And I didn't think of it as the tee shot for the first hole for for the first three or four days I was there. But eventually it was like, well, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, once you got up over the ridge, there was a great backdrop for a green. And it was just like, yeah, I mean, you could, you could start there and work right into that feature. Um, so, or, or Terraiti, you know, when, when I saw Terraiti the first time, it was just a pine forest that had been planted and, there were there are some islands out off the coast, which is the one thing that, you know, you're not just looking out at the ocean, you're looking out at certain things 10 miles offshore. And to show us that, John Darby, who's been a golf course architect in New Zealand too, but he was like the project manager or landscape architect for this project, uh, caught a line in the trees at an angle so that we could see the one island that you would clearly want to aim a golf hole at as you could, if you could. And it just so happened it wound up that where exactly where he cut that center line is where the 17th hole is now. It's a, <laughs> it's about 140 yard par three from pretty much right where the, the road turned where he started going right that direction. It's a little, it's a little wider now though. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you, you go on site, you are verifying what you maybe thought leading into your visit, you taking notes, I assume, maybe taking lots of pictures. Um, I'm assuming after that first visit, very exciting time. You got all these things running through your head of all the things you yeah. see on the ground, things that you like that you uh, had leading in, things that don't work. Do you immediately kind of go back to a, a hotel room and and 
get out the topo map again and start drawing some more? Or what are you, what are you doing with yeah. what you learned from that first site visit? You know, more and more nowadays, I've learned to give myself enough time. You know, assuming that it looks like a job that we really want and that we're not going through a 50 architect selection process, <laughs> um, I've learned to just go spend four or five days on site and really work on it, which is, you know, go walk around during the day, come back at lunch or in the afternoon and, you know, try to figure out where you were on the map and, and what you liked of that and sort of make some notes, go back out in the afternoon and do some more, um, you know, keep, keep working on the puzzle for three or four days. At some point, you know, it's not, you're not always expecting that you get to like the finished solution in that length of time, but you want something solid enough as a routing that you can go away and think about it for a while and keep looking back at the map every once in a while and thinking about other things. You know, I mean, when you get, when you get fixed on, you know, this is going to be my idea. Um, it's hard to go back and look at the outsides and sometimes what you need is time, you know, but I, I still like to get close to a routing from my first visit and then go away and let it sink in for a while. So when I come back, I can let go of that. That's the perfect routing, but at least I've got a framework that works. And now how do I want to edit this? Cause I find most of the time what I'm not doing is starting over unless something drastic, you know, something drastic has changed with, you know, someplace like Rock Creek in Montana, where we had thousands of acres, you know, it took us a couple of visits to even figure out where the golf course would go. But, you know, short of that, if, I, if I'm in the right place for the golf course, I'm going to edit it from then on. I'm not just going to wad that up and start over, you know, I'm going to say, okay, is this four hole loop over here, the best it can be, or is there another better way to do that and sort of work on it a few pieces at a time. And as we talked about in the beginning, one of the reasons I mark up a topo map is every time you go over a ridge into another, you're going into another section of the property. You don't see that section from anywhere else. In theory, you don't, you're not gonna, you're very unlikely to play blindly up over that ridge. In rare circumstances, you'll have a blind tee shot, but not that, not all that often. So those are the places where you, you, it sort of breaks itself up into a bunch of different parts and you can start looking at the individual parts. And is this the best solution to this part? And then, you know, some, at some point after that, you have to decide, you know, getting from one section to another, am I doing that in the best places? But the, those are usually the things you figure out the fastest. It's like, there's a nice little pass up, pretty gentle to go up and over that way and come back. Or, or if I go over this big wetland with a bridge, I probably want to come back over the same bridge instead of building another $400,000 bridge over there. Uh, those, those things drive routings. And, you know, it's different in different kinds of projects and different pieces of land, what are the things that break break up the puzzle for you? you? You've talked about the puzzle and how you can break it up into different sections. I think that's really helpful to think about how you go about it. One thing you touched upon in the book 
is um, you talked about uh, when you were interacting with uh, Mr. Kaiser and how you went on your trip and you were talking about Portrush and County Down and, and how uh, Portrush maybe uh, the experience was maybe greater than the sum of the parts, maybe in part due to the sequencing of things and how uh, I think you touched upon there was kind of a high point in the middle of each nine as opposed to just the start and the finish. And, and you, you felt like that was maybe one of the keys to success at Pacific Dunes as well. When you were looking at a routing, obviously you've worked on all different pieces of ground and types of topography. In your mind, is there an ideal sequence to, to a golf course? Uh, or is it 100% dependent upon the site itself? I think it's almost 100% dependent on the site itself. And, and, you know, what you're going for with that golf course, what the client's goals are. Um, you know, I've found that more and more, you know, I mean, the cliche of design is, you know, saving the best stuff for last and having 17 and 18 at Pebble Beach finish on the ocean, even though you and I know if we really think about that, that's not the most dramatic part of Pebble Beach. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's way out on the other end. Yeah. Uh, so that, that cliche of, you know, I mean, the, the typical routing for a property with coastline is the Pebble Beach figure eight. So you'll have the water on the right part of the way and the water on the left part of the way. And in modern golf, instead of putting the clubhouse at the end, you're more likely to put it in the middle and have, you know, nine and 18 finishing on the water in opposite directions. If there was a boilerplate way to design something on coastline, that would be it. Um, you know, my problem with that as much as anything is having played those courses is, you know, how boring are the first few holes sometimes and, and how awful is the transition from nine to go back inland to 10 and, you know, put away the excitement for a while until you get back to 16 and you're back on the ocean again. Um, and what I noticed when I went through other oceanfront courses and the ones I really liked were that they didn't do that. You know, Valley Bunyan hits the ocean two or three times in the middle. I mean, originally the clubhouse was at the other end and it was on the ocean right away from the first hole because that was the, or the second hole. This, the sixth hole was the first hole originally. And so, so what's now seven and 11 and 16 and 17 were much earlier in the round. And then you played inland to finish. Um, you know, um, Port Rush, like we talked about, you know, I mean, the contrast with my trip with Mike was Royal County down, which starts right along the ocean for three holes, works progressively back inland, and you're, you're still in big dunes for the whole front nine and a part of the back nine, but it starts ebbing away and you get to the last three holes and it's really kind of a disappointment. I mean, it's, it's a great golf course. I'm not saying that, but, but the sequence of how you do things, it just, the least dramatic holes are last. Port Rush, you start the furthest away from the, from the ocean, but because it's not all parallel with the coastline exactly, the water is kind of out at the far end of it. You hit it at four and five and six and seven now, the, the new par five hole. 
And then you have the big dramatic view again, not right on the coastline at 13, 14, 15 in there. Um, and, you know, Mike liked that better and asked me why. And I said, I just thought it was more engaging that you couldn't really tell, you know, you were surprised when you got back to something dramatic again and pleased that you got back to it instead of like, you know, being able to time it by your watch of what, you know, when it's going to happen. Um, and I also, probably the biggest rule that I have for routings now that I've kind of stumbled on over the years is that the start is really important. Not just the starting hole, but like, you know, I've walked a thousand golf courses or something like that. And, and usually if I don't really like the golf course by the third or fourth hall, it doesn't matter what you say until later, it's going to struggle to be a great golf course. So a lot of my golf courses, not deliberately planning them that way, but, but liking it when it worked out that way, you know, Pacific Dunes, you get to the ocean view at the third green and then the fourth is right along the cliff. Barnboogle, you're playing three holes through the dunes. They're pretty cool. Number four is dramatic as heck. And number five, you're right along the ocean. Um, Cape Kidnappers gets to the ocean at five and six, but you can see it coming as soon as you make the turn from number three and you've got like huge topographic features you don't find on other golf courses to keep you interested. So I've really found that that's a big factor. Now, if, if I only had that terrain for three holes, would I use it at three, four, and five? No, probably not. But I probably wouldn't save it all till 18 either. When you are, um, when you're in the process, uh, we've talked about, you know, you go out, uh, come up with some ideas, first site visit, you're trying to verify, you're spending multiple days there. At what point are you kind of bringing the client in and walking them through what you like and getting their sense? And how uh, how often does their feedback uh, force you to go into different directions? Um, well, that first time or two that I'm out on the site and they're around, I might point at something and ask them if that appeals to them. But really, I, I try not to ask for client feedback until the plan is starting to come together because, because I don't want to ask them, do you love this piece and then be stuck with it forever? And because I don't want to ask them, do you like this piece that's kind of an important connector and have them say no, you know, because seeing that without seeing the good stuff that that comes before and after that makes you need that piece is hard. So I'd rather not show them a plan until I have a real plan to put in front of them and walk through. Um, is that I, uh, is that something that's evolved through your career as to how you've chosen to engage with clients and when to ask them for feedback? Not much. I mean, even High Point was kind of that way. I didn't show the client that until I had most of it figured out. Um, you know, the legends was all flat forest, so it didn't matter. We didn't spend a lot of time on that part of it. Uh, Black forest. I did not show the client much about what I was, uh, other than just talking generally about, you know, I think we really need to go up the hill and around the valley on the other side. I don't think it'll all fit in here and, and feel right. Uh, now I waited until the plan was mostly done. 
and we were flagging stuff for clearing. Um, so no, I've just, I don't know if Mr. Dye didn't really teach me that per se, but he did teach me that sometimes the client is their own worst enemy as far as saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And, you know, don't invite that if you can help it. You know, trying to help them through the process means trying to figure out, trying to figure it out mostly for them. That doesn't mean ignore their input. You certainly, once you've got a plan together, you want to know what they don't like and you want to understand why they don't like it. But you would rather be at the point where you can try to edit that out instead of like doing your whole plan around those two or three things. What uh, we'll, we'll finish up here with this one. You, you know, you've kind of walked us through start to finish how you how you get there. What, what's your favorite part of that process? Um, is is it seeing the topo map first and and playing around with the puzzle, or is it the first time on site, or is it uh, when you when you get it all figured out and and you watch people tee off on opening day? What what's the what's the most exciting part for you? Oh, it's the whole process for me. I mean, it, you know, I. If you know it's a good piece of ground, getting the topo map and starting to play around with it is really fun. I just I just got one the other day, as a matter of fact. I went and I, I did it kind of backwards because it was for somebody we knew, but I spent three or four days with Eric actually trying to do a routing on a piece of ground without a map because they didn't have a map yet. And you know, I was just I was just out on my driving tour and I knew I wasn't gonna go back there soon, so I might as well see it while I could. And, you know, we really had fun charging around trying to figure out a routing without really having any idea of how it fit together until we found our way around. And it was the kind of ground you could get lost on pretty easily. You know, you couldn't see over that hill and see how much space there was. Um, so I did that part first, and now I just got the map Friday. So it's Monday. So I spent most of the weekend playing around with the map first, finding the holes that we that we found on the ground on the map and seeing how they fit together and how long they really are and how much space that takes up. And it's funny how sometimes they, they don't sit in relation to each other quite the way you thought they do because you can't see across the <laughs> whole site. Um, but then seeing how much other ground there is out around it that we didn't see at, and uh, you could, okay, you could draw out those two holes and have, have a par three going north instead and come back with a longer, or four and you know that whole editing process is just as fun and and certainly when you go to the site for the first time and you, you know you've got an idea of i think that looks like a good hole on the topo map and it turns out to be the 10th hole at rock creek which is on the cover of one of my books now and i really did that was the first thing i saw on that topo map the day i got it was that out of like 600 acres was First, I would be a cool short par four to there. And then, you know, you could even go way back here and make it a par five and it would still, you'd drive it right to where the T was for the short par four. So it would still, it would work it as a 600 yard hole. And uh, it worked as a 600 yard hole. <laughs> well, Tom, thank you so much for taking some time and talking about uh, getting to 18 and all that goes into routing a golf course. Uh, for folks who want to buy the book, I realize it's a very limited edition and there'll probably uh, uh, be a race to get it before they're gone. Where, where can they find the book? Yeah, there's it's a limited edition of 1500 because I figured 
not that many people would be interested. We've sold 1,200 of them in the last four months. So yeah, supplies are limited. Uh, you can order it at my website, which is just my last name, dokegolf.com. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.